Our scriptures this morning that we read are kind of an odd juxtaposition if you think about it. We have the passage that Aubrey just read from Luke and then the passage from uh, Isaiah. In Isaiah, Jesus said, I'm, or God says, I'm, I'm doing something completely new. And it's, it sounds like a wonderful thing. And then in Luke, Jesus reads from Isaiah again and he says, the Lord has sent me to bring peace and liberty and to, to bring justice to the world. Sounds like wonderful news. And then we read in Acts 14, and we see this strange sequence of events where uh, there's great opposition to this very gospel that is, was God created for the purpose of doing these wonderful things. So much so that it ends up in Paul, uh, with Paul, uh, when it reaches its climax, being stoned and left for dead. A really strange, why would a gospel, good news, do something like that? Why would it provoke such response, such opposition? So I'm going to tell you where we're going to go today, and then uh, we're going to take a little journey to get there. So I figured it'd help you to know, just like on a trip, say, you know, where are we going? I'll, I won't tell you all the roads yet, but the destination is this. What I want to do is I want to give you four essential characteristics of the gospel. These characteristics are essential, and they are what, at least a part of what fuels the transformative power of the gospel to do the very things that we read about in Isaiah and in, Luke, in Jesus' reading of Isaiah in, in Luke. But they're also, those very four things are the things that create opposition to the gospel. And the temptation is for us to somehow dilute those four things, to compromise them in some way. But when we do that, you have no gospel. We dilute the very power of God in his, trans, in his uh, transformative project here on earth. He will still complete the project, but we ourselves will not be participating in that because of the way that we are diluting it. So that's kind of where we're going. So uh, to do this, I want to just kind of walk back through chapters 13 and 14 real quickly. Chapter 13 and 14 cover what we call the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. Uh, they, they travel through a lot of different places. You could read this journey on several different levels. One, you could read it as a travelogue. There's all these places they go. They start in their home in Syrian Antioch at this Gentile church that uh, prays and fasts, and God says, send Paul and Barnabas out. From there they go to uh, Barnabas' hometown or home community of Cyprus. Then they travel to a different Antioch, Pisidian Antioch, which Aubrey spoke about last week. And, they, and then from Pisidian Antioch, they travel to Iconium, up north, so it's kind of like if you were looking at it on a map, it's sort of a laying down J. So they're at Cyprus, they go up to Turkey, into Iconium, then to Lystra and Derby, and then they backtrack. And in biking circles, we say it was an out and back trip. You know, they went out, they followed the same route pretty much back, and they end up back at home at the end of chapter 14. They travel about, we think, maybe about two years on this trip. There was probably 60 days of actual travel time. Remember, they're traveling a lot by foot. And uh, they, they covered 1,600 miles, no trivial trip. Now, that's one level which you could read chapters 13 and 14. And it gets kind of dizzying because we're not familiar with that part of the world. It's hard to keep up with things. But there's another level on which you can read it. And that is that, it, that in chapters 13 and 14, what you see is an escalating and increasingly widespread opposition to the gospel. So let's just walk through that a little bit. In chapter 13, when they're in Cyprus, they, uh, are, they, they are teaching and everything, and then they finally come to the proconsul there in Cyprus, a, a Roman governor, 
And there's this guy named Bar-Jesus, or Elymas the Magician, who opposes them. So it's an individual opposes them. He tries to undercut their message with the proconsul, and uh, you can read the story how that all plays out. Then from there, eventually they get to Pisidian Antioch, which uh, we looked at last week, and there the opposition is a bigger group. It's the unbelieving Jews. And we're told that they're jealous of the crowds. We'll get into that in a second. But because of their jealousy, it says that what they did is they reviled Paul and Barnabas. Now, revile means to cast insults, to yell at, to, to do everything to discredit, you know, uh, it, kind, of like, kind of like a presidential election, you know, in a way. <laughs> they incited the city leaders, and it says that the leaders, Gentiles and Jews alike, somehow they were successful in doing this, they drove Paul and Barnabas out of the city. From there, we go to chapter 13. There they come to this town called Iconium. So now they've traveled up from uh, into... Uh, up, getting up into Turkey, what's modern-day Turkey. And there, they run into more opposition. The local unbelieving Jews, it may be that some of the Jews from Pisidian Antioch had come in and helped fuel some of that. It wasn't that far away. Uh, but we do know that some of the local unbelieving Jews kind of rallied together with some of the Gentiles. And this time it says that they poisoned, the Jews poisoned the minds of the Gentiles against Paul and Barnabas. And this culminated in a plot to assassinate them by stoning. Incredibly cruel, inhumane form of uh, execution uh, that's done communally. And uh, they weren't successful. Paul and Barnabas got word, and so they left Iconium, and then they go to, Ly to Lystra. Now in Lystra, this is where things kind of reach their climax. Here we find out that not only are some of the, the Jews, uh, unbelieving Jews in Lystra opposing them, but we're told that the Jews from Pisidian Antioch and Iconium have joined in. They follow parts like a train, you know, people who are a bigger and bigger train of people who are opposing them. They come into the city and they uh, are successful, it says, in uh, inciting a mob. They take a mob action and this time they follow through. They stone Paul. They drag him out of the city and they leave him for dead. All this in opposition to this wonderful news. How could that possibly be? Luke leaves us kind of wondering, how does this escalation come about? Uh, think about it. These people in, in the story in, in chapter 14, they were just, uh, had just tried to, to worship Paul and Barnabas, to offer sacrifices to them as Zeus and Hermes, you know, a big party. And then in the very next verse, they're stoning him. Why such a rapid turnaround? How could this possibly come about? In the Jews that helped incite this, we're told that they were jealous, as I mentioned earlier in chapter 13. Uh, it says that uh, in chapter 13, if you go back and read verses 44 to 46, it says, after Paul and Barnabas had been there in Pisidian Antioch, preaching, that they went to the synagogue, and the people in the synagogue said, come back, this is an amazing message, we want to hear more about it. When they come back the next week, here's what we read. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. What happened? The Jews were jealous. What were they jealous of? Were they jealous because Paul and Barnabas attracted a bigger crowd than they were attracting at their synagogues? No. The Jews were jealous because Paul and Barnabas were inviting the Gentiles into the very kingdom that they had claimed for their own. They were God's chosen people. They were, they were exclusive. Uh, they were not 
interested in the rest of the world joining into that, and their ethnic identity was central to, to who they were. And Paul and Barnabas were threatening that, and they were jealous. And this incited them, and they followed them now on into chapter 14. So I kind of wonder, though, when they got to, uh, to Lystra, how did they incite those crowds? Can you imagine? Maybe they, they walked in and they said, hey, you know, here's the Gentile crowd. Paul and Barnabas have been preaching to them. People are getting all excited. They say, hey, guess what? These guys are trying to invite you into the kingdom of God. We don't want that to happen. Let's kill them. I don't think they would have got a lot of traction with that, right? And it'd be kind of like if I walked into my class first day at JMU where I teach and said, hey, guess what? The administration is imposing on my academic freedom. They're telling me that I can't give you tests and I have to give everybody an A. We can't have that. Let's storm the administration. I don't think that's what they said. They didn't do that. What did they do? They did something that really lit a fire under that crowd. So so quickly they could turn and want to kill Barnabas and Paul. We get some clues throughout, throughout the book of Acts up to this point. Uh, as we pointed out, the gospel for the Jews challenged their deepest sense of who they were. In a way, the gospel threatened cultural collapse for the Jews because it questioned the very ways that they had defined themselves as a culture. And so that's part of what was getting them so upset. They may not have articulated it that way, but that was that visceral reaction they were having. For the Gentiles, I would argue it's the same thing. It just looks a little bit different. Now let's look in Acts 14, verses 14 through 16. This is where the crowd has, Paul and Barnabas have healed this man who was lame from birth. And uh, the crowd gets all excited. It's hard for me to comprehend this in my sort of way of life nowadays. They got so excited, they said, the gods have come down among us. Uh, Barnabas, you must be Zeus, the head of the gods. And Paul, you must be Hermes, the speaker. And they, they get the priest of Zeus, and they come out, and they're going to offer sacrifices to them. When Paul and Barnabas saw this, in, in verse 14 of chapter 14, it says, when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments. They rushed out into the crowd, crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Now, picture yourself in the crowd. Trying to offer sacrifice to these guys. You know, they say, no, 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 don't do this. And you think, oh, they're just modest, you know. And they say, no, don't do this. We have good news for you. The good news is that you need to turn from these vain things. If I was in the crowd, I'd go, that's kind of a weird thing to say to us. I might be put off a little bit by that, a little bit troubled. Turn from what vain things? Well, of course, they're referring to the pantheon of gods, Greek gods, Greco-Roman gods, that they were worshiping. In that day, in that time, in the common populace, the gods were everything. Every aspect of life was revolved and orbited around the gods. People offered sacrifices to the gods as they're going down the street in their homes. They had their own little private ways of worshiping the gods. They sought the gods' help for their crops, uh, for any business deals they were doing. Uh, they uh, formed allegiances based on the gods that helped their businesses. It just shaped everything about their society. Paul and Barnabas say, you need to turn from these vain, empty things to a living God. Now, this call to turn is the same kind of threat 
of cultural collapse that I believe the Jews felt. But it may not have struck the Gentiles quite like that. Maybe they were just kind of like put off, going, well, that's really weird. Why would you say something like that to us, you know? But what happens? you got the Jews from Pisidian Antioch and Iconium, and they come walking in. I could just picture it. I don't know for sure what they said, but I picture something like this. Hey, did you hear that? That's what they were doing to us. They're trying to undermine everything about who we are, and that's exactly what they're doing for you guys. They're saying you can't worship your gods, that that's totally wrong, that it's vain. They could feed that pretty easily, I can imagine. And then in a matter of minutes, I guess, this crowd flips, and they go, wait a minute, and you can just see the riot action, and they grab Paul and Barnabas, drag them out of the city, and stone them. So, herein, we're confronted with the disrupting nature of the gospel. And I ask again, if the gospel is such good news, why is it so disruptive? Why does it meet with such opposition? So, I'm going to propose four things. Here we are. It's the main idea. Four what I would consider to be essential characteristics of the gospel that cannot be diluted. You may think of some others, but these four stand out to me in my mind and I think speak to us even today. And I'm going to give you all four of them and then we'll talk about them. First, the gospel is exclusive. Secondly, the gospel is comprehensive. Thirdly, the gospel is counterintuitive. And then fourth, the gospel is outrageous. And all four of these things are what, in many ways, make the gospel what it is, what fuel it to bring about the great news that God has for us. So let's talk about the first one. The gospel is exclusive. Throughout the book of Acts, throughout Jesus' life, the claim is made unequivocally that this gospel is the only prescription for healing for the world. It's the only one. There are many that are claimed, but the gospel the claim of the gospel, the claim of Scripture, the claim of Christ, the claim of the apostles in the book of Acts is, this is it. There is no other way. Don't kid yourself. In Acts 4, chapter, verses 11 and 12, uh, Peter speaks. He says, there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And by saved, you need to read that word more thickly than by which we can have our sins forgiven. By saved, we mean there's no other way the world is going to be healed. There's no other way things are going to be made right. But through this man, Jesus. Now, that challenged, in that time, the Greco-Roman pantheon, which had multiple gods. So the common populace had all these gods. You see this in Lystra. And what Paul and Barnabas effectively say, that's, that they're going to get you there. It's not going to do it for you. But it also challenged something else, and that was Caesar himself. Because Caesar claimed to be God himself, the one who could bring peace and make things right and protect you and provide for you. Don't we hear that today in that presidential election year? I will do what you need. I will make things right. Everybody will bring justice and fairness to all. I mean, those are wonderful ideals, but I'm telling you, I don't think a president's going to be able to do that. I don't think a Congress can do that. What the gospel says, what scripture says, is the gospel is the only way, through Jesus, is the only way. 
Now, this claim of exclusivity really challenges us in our age of tolerance today. I teach at a university. Tolerance is the word, it's the coin of the realm. You know, it's this idea that, you know, your truth is as good as my truth. And the only immoral thing to do is to say that something is immoral. There is an absolute in the doctrine of tolerance. And this is based on some really, if you thought to think about it, incredible assumption. And the assumption is that if we all just sort of let everybody do their own thing, everybody believe their own thing, that's all okay, then somehow that's going to bring peace. Bring peace. Or maybe even in an extreme, if we just got rid of religion altogether, there would be peace in the land. Uh, John Lennon had a song. Imagine there's no heaven, you know. Imagine there's no God. Everything would be wonderful. History tells us that just doesn't work. In the first century, Roman Empire was a pantheistic, open, tolerant society. When the Romans conquered the land, they took their gods and said, hey, that's cool, we'll make them part of our pantheon. You got that religion? I like that. We'll throw that in. We, I like what you do there. Let's try a little bit of that. And yet, it was the most oppressive empire on the face of the earth. The communist, Russian communist empire was an atheist empire, said, hey, no religion, we'll get rid of it. Well, atheism is its own religion, and how oppressive of an empire is that? What in our history makes us think that a tolerant, this, this notion of tolerance, I'm, I'm not arguing for the idea of, against the idea of our being respectful of one another, so don't misread me there, but this notion that anything goes, or that we'll just abolish religion, that somehow that's going to work. There's nothing in history that tells us that's going to do it. Only in Star Trek does that happen. <laughs> So for me, it's tempting to dilute this aspect of the gospel, to sort of hedge on this. Say, well, you know, Jesus, he's really, he says he's the son of God. He's a great guy, and he does good things. He's a great teacher, and that's not what the the scripture says. And so I do that. We might be tempted to do that because we might be accused of being narrow-minded or judgmental. You know what? We just got to take it on the chin. It's just the way it is. People misread Christians all down through the ages. Now, I can be uh, wise and discerning in how I express that, but if it's the truth, why and how could I possibly say it's not the truth? I can tell someone, you can jump off of this building and it won't break your leg. That doesn't mean that it's the truth. It won't change the reality of gravity. So, we have to accept this exclusivity. The second aspect or dimension of the gospel characteristic is that it's comprehensive. In Acts 14, verse 15, Paul said, we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things. Not just, oh, you need to worship differently. You know, we do it this way, you need to do it that way. We worship this God, you need to worship that God. No, they're saying you need to turn from this total way of life. It's comprehensive. It cuts across everything. Now, when someone comes to Christ, not everything that they believe and do will change. Because much of what we believe and do is shaped by the capital that we have in a culture that has a a long-term Judeo-Christian influence. But everything that you do and believe is on the table. Everything is up for grabs. Our posture when we come to Christ is not that I'll give you a piece of me, I'll give you this part, this corner of my life, that corner of my life, and the rest of it's mine. When we come to Christ, all belongs to him. The psalmist in Psalm 139, he had this posture toward God, and I think 
epitomizes our posture toward Christ uh, in verses 23 and 24. He, he, and it's a prayer I pray quite often. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. You see if there's any hurtful way in me, anywhere, any part, anything that is creating wounds and division and injustice. Weed that out in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's a comprehensive commitment to the way of Christ. So what about you? Are you willing to place your entire life before Christ and let him, like a skillful surgeon, go in, leave what is good, but take what is bad and reshape it and remake it? Or do you have a religion that is compartmentalized? has pieces of your life, maybe reserved to Sundays. Are you holding back some area of your life that you're not willing to yield to him? So the gospel is exclusive, it's comprehensive, and it's counterintuitive. Somebody, some people say it was Albert Einstein, some people say it was Mark Twain, some people say it was Benjamin Franklin, said this, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. I've heard that as a definition of addiction as well. Doing, oh, I'll just take another drink. It's going to make me feel better. You know, just, it'll make me feel better. And life just keeps spiraling down deeper and deeper and deeper. Our society, our culture, all of creation is fatally broken. It's wounded in ways that we could never fix on our own. What makes us think that we are so smart that we can keep doing what we've been doing and get different results? This is the history of the human race. And what the gospel breaks into all of that and says, no, 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 I have another way. It's the way of Jesus. It's the way of Christ. Begins with his death, burial, and resurrection on the, and, and forgiveness of sins, and that it plays out in communities of people who are committed to him. Listen to some of the counterintuitive things that Jesus said. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. That doesn't, that's, that's not the mantra among my colleagues at JMU. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That doesn't sound like the way to inherit the earth. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of me. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of me, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then... Paul describes Jesus himself in this very counterintuitive way. He says, though he was by nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be held on to. But he emptied himself. Because he was God, he emptied himself. And he took the form of a servant because he is God. And being born in the likeness of man, being found in human form, he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Is that a way to launch a kingdom that will change and heal all of the nations? Yes, it is. That's the claim of the gospel. Time and time again, we are called upon, when we put our faith in Christ, to act and to think and to move and to interact with others in ways that will be counterintuitive to us. That's because we have been trained by a lifetime of destructive habits and pressures that, that shape and mold who we are. So the temptation is to rely on your own judgment instead of on the wisdom of God. The temptation is to do the easy thing instead of the right thing. The temptation is to follow Jesus 
only when it feels right and good, not if it causes any discomfort or pain. Lawrence Gonzalez is a well-known author. He does a lot of research about people who survive wilderness experiences where they get lost or they're shipwrecked or plane wrecks or whatever. And he's, he does a lot about the psychology of what makes someone survive doesn't. He found that, he said, I used to think that it was all about the equipment, having the right equipment. He said, what I found now is that it's really not about that. It's about the person themselves. It's about what they bring into that experience. And he says, he talks about something that's very important, the notion of denial. He said, denial plays a large role in many wilderness accidents. Getting lost, take getting lost. A hiker in denial will continue walking even after losing the trail, assuming he'll regain it eventually. He'll press on and become increasingly lost. That's a great description of the human race. It may be a good description of your own life. Just keep walking on, walking on. I'll do it. I'll work it out. I know what I need to do. I'll try this. I'll try that. Trying the same thing over and over and over again, expecting different results. So are you like the lost hiker? who's in denial that you're lost, still pressing on, getting deeper and deeper and deeper into those woods and increasingly lost. Or maybe you follow Jesus, but you sometimes, or maybe you don't, you find the way of Jesus to seem foolish or just idealistic. Not something, it'd be something you admire, but never something you'd actually do. Do you follow Jesus only when it makes sense to you? So I would suggest to you, if that's what you're doing, you're not living the gospel. You haven't embraced the kingdom of God. And you are robbing yourself of participating in the kingdom of God. Finally, the last thing. So we say that the gospel is uh, what? What did we say? Let me look. Yeah, exclusive, comprehensive, counterintuitive, and now outrageous. Thank you. Okay. Why is the gospel outrageous? Well, for Pete's sake, we worship a guy who was killed at the hands of Romans, and we say he rose up from the dead three days later. And we say that somehow, through this death and sacrifice on a cross and this resurrection, that everything has changed. How crazy is that? Christian faith is outrageous. In Acts 26, in verse 8, Paul, we'll get to that story later, and as we stay through Acts, I guess we'll get that far. He's defending himself. He's, he's in a, been a, through a series of trials and things, and he's before a Roman governor, Festus, and King Agrippa. And in verse 8, listen, it's very fascinating from Paul. Paul was probably, many scholars, Christian and non-Christian, say Paul may have been like one of the great geniuses of history. The guy was no fool. And here's what, here's what it says. Paul says to them, he says, Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Think about that. If there's a God, why would you have a problem that he could raise the dead? If he created the universe, what's the issue here? And he goes on, he says, or Festus later replies to him, verse 24, says, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. And here's Paul's answer. He said, I am not out of my mind. Most excellent Festus. I am speaking true and rational words. 
The Christian faith is outrageous, but it is not irrational. It is incredible, but it is not a fool's dream. So what about you? Do you find the gospel of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and his kingship is just too much to swallow? Well, you're in a big club. I find it pretty amazing myself. Do you have doubts? It's really understandable to have doubts. There's room in God's kingdom for people who have doubts. But see Paul's statement. He says, I'm not out of my mind. I am speaking true and rational words. We have people here who have PhDs in philosophy, who have committed their life to Christ. And for them, it is entirely rational. They're not the only ones in the room for which faith is entirely rational. And I would suggest to you that to not believe in Christ may be the most irrational thing. If you stop and think about the assumptions that you have about how this world is ever going to change. Well, the gospel is great news. But the gospel is divisive. It changes everything. And that's why some reject it. But that's not all that Luke wants us to see in chapters 13 and 14. I want you to go back and look in these chapters. Through all of this opposition and all of this persecution, you see, in chapter 13, after just before he's run out of town, in verse 48, it says, When the Gentiles heard this about the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region in the face of this opposition. And then in chapter 14, and in verse 1, they come to Iconium, the place where they, the people try to stone them and they escape, it says they spoke in the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. And then, if you look later in chapter 14, and in verse 20, and this is in, uh, after they, the uh, people in Lystra have turned on Paul and Barnabas after trying to worship them as gods, they stone Paul, leave him for dead, And it says, when the disciples, verse 20, when the disciples gathered around Paul outside the city, left for dead, he rose up and he entered the city. Now, I don't picture Paul like, boom, popping up. Hey, what's going on, you know? No, he probably was like, they probably had to carry him into the city and help him get into the city. The man was within an inch of his life, but he rose up. And then we go on in verse 21. It says, he went to the city, and next, next day he travels to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, then they returned, where? To Lystra, where they tried to kill them, and to Iconium, and to Antioch, where they tried to kill them, strengthening the souls of the disciples, the people who, in the face of all of that opposition, said, this makes sense. This is the way we will go. They became followers of Jesus. They strengthened them and encouraged them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations, Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Wow, that's really the truth. Those people had seen it, right? They'd seen Paul stoned within an inch of his life. They knew. So, through many tribulations, I declare to you in the name of Paul, through many tribulations, every one of us enters into the kingdom of God. 
Life is hard. It's hard without Christ. There are hardships that come with Christ because we follow Christ. It's through those tribulations that the kingdom of God is manifest in your life and the blessings of the kingdom come into your life and into the the realm of influence where you are. So this is where Luke leaves us. It's interesting when they get back. It says that they came back to their hometown and they strengthened the, the, the believers and everything. But then in verse 27, after chapter 14, it says, When they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. You know, I'm not sure that's a trip report I would have given if I'd been with Paul and Barnabas. I would have focused on, guys, you, this is tough out there, man. You don't know what's going on. I'm sure they told some of that. But the gist of their message was, guess what? God's kingdom is advancing. And that means that healing is coming to the nations. This is the message that Luke wants us to have. This is what he wants us to see in the face of the opposition to the gospel. Let's pray together. Lord, the good news you have given to us is such, such good news. But Lord, we are not foolish to think that the powers of this age, the powers of all ages, will resist and stand up in opposition to you and your anointed one, Jesus. Lord, we ask that you would help us not to dilute the distinctive character of your gospel, the identity of Jesus and his lordship over all, the outrageous claim of his resurrection. Help us not to dilute this, Father, so that we not be like salt that has lost its saltiness and is good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled by men. Help us, Lord, to be the light of the world, city on a hill, spreading light and healing to the nations. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.